Hello, welcome to Encounter Church. Um, I just, I really wanted that hamster to get that carrot. It's like, keep going, buddy, you're going to make it. Um, actually, you never will. You're in a trap. So um, my name is Chris Causey, and um, today we're going to be kicking off a two-week series called Chasing Carrots. Um, if you were here last week, Dallas did a phenomenal job from what I've heard from you guys. We were out of town, so I haven't been able to listen to it, full disclosure, but um, people are like, man, that was awesome. And so we're really excited. Thank you, Dallas, for closing up, I think, what was a really powerful series called Soul Detox, where we're just looking at some of the things that really get stuck inside of our soul and rob life from us. And so if you missed any of those um, and you want to catch up, they're all in the Encounter Church app, YouTube and Facebook are all available for you there. Um, what I want to do today is lean in for just two weeks and have... Um, two uncomfortable conversations with you. So if this is your first time to encounter church, congratulations. You've picked a great day. Um, this is like the let's sit down, we need to have a talk. Not really, but it's a little awkward because I want to talk about something that makes us all feel uncomfortable. Um, good news is if you came today, um, the really awkward conversation is next week. So this is like the first half of the awkward conversation. So Good job. You picked the better of the two weeks to show up. Um, so, uh, because I think this thing has the power to transform your life and to make an incredible difference. And I know this because I work with human beings, and this is something human beings struggle with. All right? And God has a lot to say about it. So, to kick off, I want to tell you about a fairy tale, an actual fairy tale. You see, there is a forest, a national forest in Oregon, that for as long as people can remember, people have been convinced there are fairies that live in this forest. At nighttime, people see the green glow scattered throughout the forest. And it's one of those things that isn't just urban legend, it's somewhat true. There is this strange green glow all throughout the national forest, the Mahalo can't even say it, National Forest, I can shoot you the name if you really want to know. Um, this Malheur National Forest, um, massive forest in Oregon, and people were convinced there were fairies, and the scientists started to go in because there was something else happening that um, had caught the eye and the attention of the forest. They ended up solving both the fairy tale and the problem. You see, they would notice that trees were dying, and they had no clue why the trees were dying, and the trees just didn't die normally. They died really strangely. In fact, they could walk into a section of the forest, and they, they discovered this pattern. The oldest tree was always the tree in the center of the dead patch. That's the one who'd been dead the longest. And they would go into a concentric circle, and they'd notice that the kind of the first ring around that tree were the second oldest, deadest trees. And the second longest, and the concentric circles until they would get to live trees. And they would notice this pattern throughout the forest, and they had no clue what was causing it. So they started to evaluate and analyze. They'd pull the bark off the trees. They would do it. And what is in, eventually they kind of realized this is a specific kind of root disease caused by a fungus. Now, what was interesting is that inside of the forest, there is also these. Um, its kind of colloquial name is humongous fungus. Um, some people call them the honeypot mushrooms, right? But they, they're edible mushrooms that have kind of a sweet taste to them. And they're also scattered throughout the forest. I mean, this is what it looks like if you happen to come across, like across a grove of them. And as they started to evaluate the trees, they started to notice something. Every one of the trees they searched, no matter which tree they searched in the forest, they all came back with the same DNA and the fungus, which is not possible. You don't expect to find DNA from a fungus over here and find the exact same DNA from another fungus four miles away because that would make something really, really big. And living organisms aren't four miles wide. But it turns out, as they kept digging in, that they had accidentally discovered one of the largest living organisms on planet Earth. Not just the largest, also the oldest living organism on planet Earth. Turns out the humongous fungus, this 
is just the fruit of the roots that are growing throughout the national forest in Oregon. It's about four square miles in its size. It weighs about 10 tons, which I recognize is a hard thing to wrap our minds around. This also weighs 10 tons, a military tank. So this humongous fungus is about four square miles wide, large, kind of in its coverage, uh, weighs about the size of a tank, and is estimated to be somewhere between 3,000 to 8,000 years old. One organism, sending its shoots and roots scattered throughout this park, slowly eating and killing the trees in the National Forest. It's amazing. So one, you're welcome. I just gave you your Jeopardy answer if you ever make it on there. But two, I just gave you, I think, a picture of why this topic that we're going to lean into over the next two weeks is so important. Because this topic is just like that fungus. It's insidious. And it affects every area of our lives. In fact, if I was to sit down with you as a couple coming in for counseling or maybe even premarital counseling, about 50% of you, this, this about 50% of you, if we identify the core problem in your marriage, it's going to be this problem. If we identify a problem that you have in your life, regardless of your romantic status right now, 50% of you, this is going to be your chief problem. And it's the problem of money. Now, that is an awkward conversation, right? Because we love and we hate money. We love having it, but we hate what happens when we don't manage it. We hate the stress it creates. We hate the pressure it brings into our lives when we don't do it well. But I would argue that money is probably one of the most, the ad, uh, most adulting things that we do. Right? I mean, that's kind of a hallmark of stepping into adulthood is finally you're living off your own money. And because as a church, I, we are so intentional about being transparent, you can relax because I'm not trying to ask you for money today. Okay? Now, if you want to give us money, we will take it. But you can take your hands off your wallet, off your checkbook, off the app, or whatever. This isn't about the church wanting your money. Because unfortunately, some people have a view of, of religious organizations, and that's all they want. But God's interest in money is not what he wants from you. It's what he wants to do for you and through you. And this is a huge thing that has to happen internally. Now, heads up, next week I will be talking about money, and I will be challenging you to transform and change the way you live your life financially. And it will be uncomfortable, and it will radically shape and change how some of you may see money for the rest of your life, but what I do know is it can transform not just your life, but the lives of people around you if you get next week's message. But, Full disclosure, if you come, you will be asked for money. You will be asked to transform the way you think about money and in the process start to transform the world because God has, I think, front-loaded a lot of the change he wants to do in the world by putting the change in us to be a part of it with him. But that's next week, all right? So you can relax. That's just next week. So if the numbers drop, I'm not going to take that as anything outside of it's just Memorial Day weekend. All right, so um, why, do I, um, why do I want to talk about this? Because God had a lot to say about money. Because he recognized that one of the chief struggles we have in our lives, one of the chief marital struggles we have in our lives, is around the area of finances. And it's really tempting to jump to the things that we should do. But what we're going to find today is, and I'm going to walk you through just three passages and this will be the, all of two weeks, all, the entirety of two weeks is just looking at three passages. Because Paul, who is one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament, one of the most famous Christians, second to Jesus, um, is speaking to his protege, a guy he's mentoring, and he's unpacking for him what he needs to do and how he needs to lead people. Because 
Timothy, his protege, is leading in an area where people did not grow up exposed to any religious concepts around finances. So most of, the, most of us, without even realizing, have been shaped by the Judeo-Christian financial structures and thought processes. And Christianity originally was an extension of Judaism. When Christianity began, it was the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. And so Paul was one of the most brightest Jewish scholars on planet Earth at the time. And so as he's going about teaching and preaching and helping, under pe- un- helping people understand who Jesus is and how to follow him, one of the things that he could take for granted in a lot of the areas around Jerusalem and Israel were people's Jewish knowledge. But as Christianity expanded beyond the scope of where Judaism had presence, there began to be a tension because you could no longer rely on people knowing Judaism to explain Christianity. And Timothy is in a place where most people there do not have an understanding of Judaism. And so Paul's helping Timothy understand how to best teach people what it looks like to follow Jesus without having the prior knowledge of Judaism. It's kind of like in college, how you have prerequisites before you can take certain courses. And up until this point in the spread of Christianity, Judaism had been a prerequisite to understanding the Christian faith. And Paul says, Timothy, you're in a place where that's not the case. So I want to help you help them. And the reason this is so helpful for us is because Paul actually spends a little bit of time explaining the why behind the what. And giving us today and them, almost 2,000 years ago, a better picture around finances. He says this to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He then continues, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So Paul gets to Timothy. He's like, Timothy, this is really strong. I need you to lean into this hard with people because this is going to be an area they've never thought about in faith before. We take for granted the idea of giving and philanthropy, but 2,000 years ago, the concept of giving and philanthropy did not exist. If you had an offering, it was transactional. You were giving to gods or to a God because you either had done something you needed to pay for or you were giving him or her or it something so that you could get something else in exchange. It was all transactional. And Paul comes along and says, The Christian faith has a whole different view of money because if you're going to follow Jesus, he's going to take you into every single area of your life and transform it. And money is one of those places that starts to transform as you follow Jesus. And it's not transactional. One of the most damaging things to people is when they think they can give God money and God's going to give them something. That's, that's a damaging thing. If I can just press in and make some of us feel uncomfortable, because remember the next two weeks, it's just about making you feel uncomfortable. I, I like, there's a, a passage in the New Testament where um, Jesus um, goes into the temple and he throws over the tables because he gets so mad. And I have to confess, sometimes when I go into churches, and I'm not disrespecting any tradition, but I'm just being honest with you, there are some churches I walk into and I want to flip over their tables because I see candles and I see boxes. And the idea is if you go light that candle, you need to put a 20 in that box. And if you put a 20 in that box, then you can light that candle, then God's going to hear your prayer. That is a lie. That is transactional, and that is the antithesis of what Christian generosity is. God does not care about our cotton, linen, top-secret blend or our 256-level encryption, whatever, whatever. 
He doesn't care about our money. He cares about our heart. And what he understands is one of the best ways to get fully into your heart and change your life is through your wallet. And so if you've ever walked into a church and you've seen that and you're like, wait, God, I need to pay God money for him to hear my prayer. No, you are exactly right. That is stupid. God does not need your $20 bill. That is the dumbest thing on planet Earth. If God only tunes into you when you give him money, because God is not into transactional exchanges. He's into transformation. Sorry, that's my little soapbox. I, I get fired up about that. Because it's so much better than that. God's ideas of money is so much better. He wants freedom for you. And he wants freedom to flow through you. And how does Paul begin to unpack this? He does something that is really, really interesting. He tells Timothy not to tell them what to do first. He tells Timothy to change the way they think about money. See, most of us never think about how we think about money. We never sit down and say, oh, what's my views on money? We have money, we spend it, or we need money, and we don't have it, and we go borrow it. We don't think about how we think about money. And Paul does this genius thing of telling Timothy, Timothy, the starting point is not to tell them to do something. The starting point is to help them understand a new way of thinking about money. To help them detach from the old ways, the old thoughts they have about money. Which is why he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. That's both thought life. That's beliefs. Paul approaches money and the conversation around money, not at the behavioral level, but at the belief level. And why does he do that first? It's because Paul, because of the wisdom of God, understands that smart people do dumb things with money all the time. Right? If we could sit around the table and we were honest with each other, we all have a dumb story of what we have done with money before. We all have a dumb story of what we spent money on or what we borrowed money for. And we're all smart people. We all know this. The problem isn't the behaviors. The problem is at the belief level. It's not an intelligence thing. It's a belief thing. And that's where Paul starts. He's saying, hey, why? I think Paul understood that most of us have never thought about what we think about when we think about money. Because most of us forget that we have a default around money. And that default around money was something that we caught from our parents. Or maybe we were lucky and we got taught it from our parents but maybe you grew up in a house that was really poor and you watched your parents stress out about money you watched your people you watched your household lament and feel the weight and you're like I'm never going to have that never going to do that or maybe you watched someone squander money and gambling and you were like I'm never going to live that way and you were you just reacted to something you saw you internalized a set of beliefs. And Paul is saying to us, hey, look, I know you caught a lot of things. But Timothy, you're going to have to teach them some new things. So he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope. And while I was studying for this message, I came across this interesting research that actually showed that people spend reimbursements from their work differently than their salary. People treat reimbursements in this financial study that was done. People tend to treat reimbursements like it's free money that they've been given. Right? But we all understand a reimbursement is money you've already spent and that you're getting repaid for, right? And what they found was not just reimbursements, but people treated bonuses differently. 
any kind of small windfall, tax refunds. What is tax refund? We give the government some of our money, and then they give it back to us. That's what a tax refund is. And what they found is in all three of those camps, people spend that money differently than how they spend what they make in their wages. And not only that, they spend it multiple times. They'll be like, oh, I got that reimbursement. And that they found that people will spend that reimbursement over here, and then they'll spend that reimbursement over here because why? They have a different thought process about reimbursement. This is what I mean when I say smart people do dumb things with money all the time. Because it's literally somebody is giving us back the money we've already spent. And so Paul, without ever having to read a study about how you and I would handle reimbursements for travel or for gas, understands this is a tendency that we all have. And so he leans into this, this way of thinking to help us change the way we think about money. And most of us have never thought about how we think about money, and so it's hard to get there. And so one of the ways that you can kind of back in to that is with this question. If you're being honest, this is not for discussion. This is not for you to lean over and answer someone else's answers. Hey, I'm going to tell you how you manage money. But if you want to understand some of your thinking about money, what do you do when it comes to managing money? What three words best describe you? Discipline and diligent, focused in a plan, uh, burning a hole in my pocket, managing what? You know, I mean, like, when it comes to you and managing money, what three words come to mind? And just in case, because Paul said earlier, command those who are rich, that you think this has nothing to do with you, because rich is something you're not, because if you had more money, then you would be rich. Let me tell you what the people who were rich in his act, if you were really, really like the top 0.1% of the world, you had access to water, running water. Now, if you do not have access to running water, congratulations, you are in the camp that he's not speaking to. But if you have access to running water, if you have access to food that is more than just the food in front of you for your next meal, but if you actually have food that you're not even planning on eating today, then you're in the 0.1% category of what wealthy was that he's talking to. So all of us, Paul would lump us into the wealth category. Now, that's not even getting into the fact that if you ever actually travel the world, you'll notice that, like, a vast majority of this planet does not live like us. That it's been estimated that 3 billion people live on less than $700, $800 a year in salary. And I know the economist in the room will kind of nitpick at that, and there are some justifications that you definitely argue around it, but none of us with our intellectualizing will ever stand in a village in a third world country and, and actually argue that we're not wealthy compared to them. I've sat in, slept in poor, poor places without running water around the globe in humanitarian kind of stints that I've done, and I've seen what poverty looks like. And all of us are rich. And so Paul is saying to all of us, how do you think about what you think about? What do you think about when you think about money? And specifically, how do you manage it? Now that you have your three words, I want to give you some very practical things as we wrap up today. Just to help you kind of understand that Paul starts with beliefs, but he doesn't end there. Beliefs always have downstream effects, right? If you believe that you are unloved, if you believe you're not worthy of affection, then you will behave differently. I mean, I, one of the saddest things, I remember growing up, and then my wife was a school teacher, and you'd, periodically she would have these kids who would just say the words, I'm just a bad kid. And you just wanted to kind of like hug them. 
and to say, no, you're not a bad kid. You don't understand. You are not a bad kid. And the reason, like, you, I'd, like my wife would just come home broken from these kids who were wrestling through issues is because she understood if they started believing they were bad kids, they would start behaving like they were bad kids. But kids who understood that they actually weren't bad, but they've done some, some things that some people could consider bad, but that's not really who they are, she would watch them transform. And when she left her last job, um, the principal actually confessed to her, hey, um, we actually put the kids in your class that the other teachers had written off because we knew you wouldn't do that. And that she would tell me stories about kids' lives who were being changed over the course of a year and them being in a room. And the only, the, the main reason was for the first time they were given permission to not believe they were bad kids. And so they started behaving differently. And this is why Paul starts with belief, because if you believe something, you will behave it. Every single time. And in the area of our finances, because we haven't done the work of unpacking what we believe, we just keep behaving the same way. Most of us do not have, this, most of us do not have new money problems. We have the same money problems in new places. And so we're like, oh, I've got this financial issue. It's probably the same financial issue you've had for the last 10 or 15 years. It's just a new context. But same belief. And it's worth unrooting it. And so part of this, I want to share some of my own personal junk, junk struggles with you because I think this is helpful. And as I've worked through this and unpacked it, but what Paul, as he's unpacked that passage, right, command those who are rich in this present age, and he has this interesting statement that has come from God for your enjoyment. Here's how I want to start this takeaway section for you. Whatever just came to mind when you thought about the three words, I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to focus on being responsible. And the word responsible is important there because Paul, when he says command those who are rich in this present age, he says to them specifically, right, that God, who's provided everything for our enjoyment, he does something in that phrase that completely transforms the way we think about money. Money has come from somewhere, and it didn't originate with your employer or some inheritance you got from your family. The original source of those resources was God himself who provided and if God is the one who gives, then that means that we are money managers. That we have a responsibility. We need to be mindful about how we're responding to what God has given us. So, in effect, we're all money managers. So how do we become better money managers? And I think some of the downstream things that kind of started to come to mind as I was working through this passage, and perhaps maybe some of these will be relevant for some of you as you unpack your three words. And if they're not relevant for you now, they're at least they give you language to articulate them to people you're influencing and the people you're leading in your household and beyond. And so one of them is choose your pain. This is one of the takeaways that as I was processing through this passage, I was like, oh my goodness. Money management, in some ways, is pain management. Right? Here's what I mean. It's either the pain of self-control or it's the pain of having no control. You're either going to have the pain of self-control of saying no to that purchase, or no to that vacation, or you're going to have the pain of having no control and drowning in debt, being underwater on a vehicle or a house, or being constrained by previous 
moments of no self-control. But money management is pain management. The choice you have is which pain. I say this because this was something I have very clearly experienced in my life. If I'm being honest, there have been some painful moments in my life around money, around no control. I grew up really poor, didn't have access to money. Then I go off to college, and people are giving out free T-shirts to sign up for credit cards. And I'm like, I want a free T-shirt, and then I can go into a restaurant, and I can swipe something and eat something, and I don't have to pay for it right then. I'm like, what is this magic that I've just experienced? Never experienced that before, right? And this wasn't something I'd ever exposed. Like, this was not in my radar. This was not something I'd ever thought about. Like, the, uh, the concept of credit was not on my, like, you know, it's just not in my lesson plan from life. We grew up barely making ends meet. Now I'm going to college, and I'm, a lot of my college is being paid for, and not only do I have excess money, I, now I've got this magical card that lets me buy anything I want right then and have it right then without having to pay for it right then. And then eventually, I started getting bills with minimum payment requirements. And the problem was the minimum was bigger than what my maximum payment ability was. And then you go in, <coughs> after you live with that for a while, and there was a point where I just stopped paying it because I had no money to pay it. And the very early years of me starting out financially as an adult, I had the worst credit score because I just quit paying it because I couldn't afford it. Didn't even have a, a box for it. And it created this extreme agony of pain. Because now I meet this incredible girl, and I'm like, oh, by the way, yeah, you're not just marrying me. You're marrying my credit score, too. And I'm pretty sure that it doesn't help you that you've hitched your life with me, and, and I'm, like, negative in my credit score over here. Why? Because no one ever sat me down and said, Chris, money management is pain management. Choose which pain. And I can, I can tell you as someone who sits down with couples who process through pain, um, never had a couple who came to me and said, man, I really need to discuss the self-control pain we're experiencing in our finances. Because we're consistently saying no to some things in our lives and we're living within our means. Um, this has created a lot of financial freedom and it's really frustrating me. Never had that couple sit down across from me. What I do have is the couples who sit down for me and I'm like, I've been living at 110% of my salary and I can't afford what that 10% has grown into because it's not free. There is no such thing as free money. And we live in a culture right now where inflation is driving up prices, where greed is driving up prices under the guise of inflation. And on top of that, retailers are trying to figure out how to make more money to squeeze out more profits because the stock market has kind of been a dumpster fire recently. And so a lot of retailers, and this is something that Mark and I, uh, Mark Fasella and I have talked about recently, <coughs> and then he kind of pointed it out to me and I started looking into it. And it turns out that one of the biggest trends right now in retail is the buy now, pay later. And that has shrunk down to smaller and smaller quantities. You can buy something from Starbucks on your American Express card, and you can plan how you're going to pay it back. <clears throat> buy now. Pay, I mean, it is, it is in every single retailer. They're rolling it out aggressively. <clears throat> so we're surrounded by money traps all the time. And this is something that I think is so critical. You will either have the pain of self-control, or you will have the pain of no control. You choose which one you want. And God wants for you freedom. The other one is a Dave Ramsey quote, but I think it's, uh, it sums up the other downstream effect of what Paul's going to talk about. And I'll kind of connect the dots a little bit more next week or, of why this one specifically. But is to act your wage. Right? I mean, like, SNL did this skit years ago that was so funny. 
And it was called, um, is there financial freedom, um, like, course that they were offering. And so it's this whole spoof of a financial freedom course. And it's like, are you overwhelmed by debt and finances? Do you feel constantly trapped by money struggles? Then we want to invite you to purchase our brand new money course, Don't Buy Stuff You Can't Afford. And the couple's like, what? He's like, so how does this work? Well, you don't buy stuff you can't afford. But let's say I want a boat. Well, do you have money for the boat? No. Well, then don't buy it. And it's like this whole skit, and people are laughing. And I was like, oh, my goodness, that is totally us. We buy stuff we can't afford because we don't act our wage. We want to, we look at our friends. We look at Instagram. We see where they're going. We see what they're doing. There's a new term that's come up right now um, called revenge vacation where people are just like, they're like overspending money on vacations right now because they want to go places because they felt stuck. So we see what people are doing, and, and we, we're trying to act other people's wages. Or if we're being honest, we're trying to act other people's debts because they put that on a credit card because they couldn't afford it either because they never subscribed to the don't buy stuff you can't afford curriculum. And this right here can change your life. If you just act your wage, you will get to the end of every month and you will have money left over. Now, the pain piece, the Christianity piece, set the stage for where we are financially. I'll just be transparent with you. I believe that when you start to follow Jesus, it affects how you live out your finances. One of the most practical measures of your spiritual maturity is your bank account and how you spend your money. If you want a picture of where you are spiritually, it is not the whole picture, but if you want a glimpse of your spiritual maturity, let's talk about how you spend your money and where you spend your money. Okay? I'll get into that next week. All right? But it's a great indicator. And this is one of the things where I discovered, becoming a Christian, that the, the baseline, this is what I was taught, is 10% of whatever you make. You just you give it back to God. I was like, okay. I guess I'm supposed to do that because I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to obey God in every area of my life. And if he says, do it over here, then I, I also see that he says I shouldn't have an affair or I shouldn't lie or I shouldn't, you know, fill in the blank. So if I'm going to do this, I should probably be doing this. If not, I'm being hypocritical. So we started doing that. We give over 10% of everything we make to the local church and to other ministries and nonprofits. 10%. You mean when things are going well? No. The first thing that we do is we give over 10% of what we make away. Don't even keep that. That means when you factor in what we're tax bracketed, which is roughly about 20% when you include the state, or a little over 20%, that means that our family makes about 70%, has about 70% of what I actually make. After we give to God and our generosity, and then we give to government our taxes. Then we do something crazy because I actually believe God understands that life is better lived with margin. Right? Have you ever noticed if you're stressed, oftentimes it's tied to you don't have margin in an area of your life you're stressed about? If you're financially stressed, it's because you don't have financial margin. If, if it's stressed, you don't have schedule margin. You don't have emotional margin. You're going through a bunch of things. You're under the pressure, margin makes life better. And I know some of your financial journeys, and some of you are heroes because you're living out this idea of margin in a way that gives you breathing room and allows you to make a difference. And so for us, our family embraced that. So over 10% of what we make, we also save. Why? Because I understand that there are going to be unpredictable things that are going to happen, but you can't predict them. No, I can't, but I know they're going to come. You can actually plan for the unpredictable. Your tire will go flat. Your car will break down. Your kids will need braces. You will have to make some emergency trip because a loved one passed away. You can plan on there being unplannable things 
happening in your life this year. So you just build them in. This acting your wage taken through the, the filter of beliefs through your behaviors actually starts to create margin in your life. And so our family lives with margin. And that we didn't get there overnight. But I'm telling you, there is something freeing about knowing if my 2003 Buick LeSabre breaks down. I'm not joking. I'm not stressed about it. I love my car. All, all the old men wave at me because they think I'm an old woman who's single. And I have to be like, not today, I'm taking it. Right? I love my car. Why do I have a 2003 Buick LeSabre? Well, it's because... I recognize I have to say no to some things. And one of the things that we've chosen to say no to, this is just personal, but this also comes out of acting my wage, is that we choose to say no to certain things in our lives that we would love to have. My dream car is a Tesla. So if, some of, if you want to give me a Tesla, I'll take it. Okay? That's my dream car. But until then, it's a 2003 Buick LeSabre. But if my, if my car died today, Tire blew out, brakes needed to be replaced. I wouldn't want to spend money to do it, but I've got the money for it. And one of the best things you could ever do is just create a little bit of margin. Maybe it feels overwhelming to, man, Chris, you're telling me your family lives on about 60% of what you make? Yes, but we didn't get there overnight. It's progress. You work towards that. You create that emergency fund. You create that space so that life doesn't have to keep surprising you. About 60% of Americans, well, one of the terrifying things during the pandemic, it was like I think two-thirds of businesses only had enough cash flow to make it one month. I mean, so many of us live with so little margin that just creating a little bit of family margin in your life could transform your life. Instead of spending your tax return on a vacation, Put it in savings to prepare for the unpreparable. And you'll sleep better. Because you either will tell your money where to go or you'll wonder where it went. Right? You're either going to tell your money where to go or you're going to get to the end of the month and you're going to wonder where it went. Like, wait a second. Where did my check go? Well, your check went to that restaurant and that restaurant and that movie and that download and that thing and that credit card. But you didn't tell it intentionally where to go. But money is a lot like children. They just kind of, it's got, it's got a mind of its own. And you got to rein it in, tell it where to go instead of wondering where it went. And that while we can't predict it, we can expect it, and that margin will transform our lives. Now, that's just the practical takeaways of what happens when we start to understand what God thinks about money, and we start to adopt and adapt to how he thinks about money. And one of the most powerful things you can ever do to your life, in your life, is to move towards God's ways and start to act your wages. Because Paul reminds us at the end that wealth is so uncertain. Money is so shaky. I keep three things in my backpack at all times. It's really random. Um, I'll tell you about the other two next week. But one of them is this. This is always in my backpack. This is a Roman coin. Um, and this was a Roman coin roughly around the same time period as Jesus' ministry. And if you were a Roman soldier, you worked for about um, six hours to get this coin. Six hours. So when I hold this coin, I'm holding about six hours of a Roman soldier's life in the palm of my hand. He would spend his time to get this. Now, if my car broke down today and I walked in and said, hey, what can this get me for a Buick LeSabre? They would laugh at me, first about the Buick LeSabre and then about the fact that I'm holding up a Roman coin because this is worth nothing. This does not buy anything. And yet, you could have been robbed, your life could have been taken in the first century because of this thing. 
And what Paul understood about money is that there's ultimately, it's, it is a temporary means. It is not the permanent end. And when money becomes our permanent end, we will sacrifice things in the end because of it. But when money is a temporary means, it's a tool, then we start to understand God's way of thinking. Money is congealed life. It's you've exchanged your time, your talents, your thought processes, your diligence, your education. You've exchanged it for this stuff. And when you spend your money, you're spending your life. And Paul understood that. And Paul's point is like, where are you spending your life at? How are you spending your life? And is it worth it in the end? Because one day, the things that we have fought and stressed about, archaeologists will dig it up and it'll be worthless. Because it's temporary. It's a tool. And I keep this in my backpack to remind me. So when I have phone calls and I get phone calls from other churches saying, hey, you want to come and pastor and we'll pay you more? A lot less stress. Or when I'm talking to a friend of mine who does executive coaching, he's like, dude, you would kill it. Hey, I, you, you took me through a process three days ago where I, he flew in. I took him through this life planning process. And then he called me a few weeks later. He's like, hey, that process you took me through, I just took somebody through it. And they paid me $3,000 for it. I did it for free for him. He's like, you'd be so good at this. You'd make at least three, four, five times what you make right now. I keep this in my backpack to remind me of the simple question, how do I want to spend my life? Because money is congealed life. And what do I want to spend my life on? And I think Encounter Church, I think what God is doing through Encounter Church is one of the best ways I can spend my life. And the question Paul has for us is, is your hope in this or is it in him? And Melissa put that so beautifully in words with the song right before I came up. Right? And she's like, God's been so faithful. And I recognize for some of us, right now, the idea of Financial management feels so out of the ballpark because we feel so financially crushed about where we are. And my encouragement to you is, is just a reminder of where God has been before in my life and has probably been before in your life is that he can provide for you. He can take care of you. He may not meet all the niceties that you want in your life, but he can meet the necessities and the needs of your life. Like, look, you don't get this. Because God hasn't met your needs. God has been faithful before. He's brought you this far. And he can do it. Because the beauty of thinking about money as a spent life naturally draws us back to where Paul ultimately rooted and sourced all of his theology from. Jesus. And what did Jesus do on a cross? Outside of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. He spent his life completely, fully, for what? For you and for me. He spent his life to purchase us, to redeem us, to restore us. So if the God who spent his life on you, if that's what he did, surely that same God can provide for you. That he's worthy. Of our lives too. And so I hope to see you back here next week. But one other thing is I would love to see you at this. Because I think this is going to be a really fun small group environment that we're starting and creating. Um, it's an experiment. So if you come and you hate it, it's okay. But I'll, I'll tell you what the first thing we're doing. Just so you give you a little bit of a glimpse. Um, we have um, partnered with a company who is going to teach us all how to paint something. So if you've ever been to like a Muse paint bar, this is what the first night's going to look like, is we're all going to paint something. Because I believe that the Christian faith is ultimately about following the leader. And so throughout this four-week journey, we're all going to be learning different things by following someone's example, ultimately to point us to the ultimate example, 
that we're meant to model our lives after, Jesus Christ. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be a way to meet, connect with people, get and form relationships with people. This class is possible because of the generosity that people have here who call Encounter Church Home, because I'm not charging you to go to this, but because people have bought into the vision of what God's doing through this church. They give, and that allows us to be able to spend money to create environments where people can know and connect with God and know and connect with each other. And so we've got four weeks. I'm really excited about all four things you're going to learn how to do, I'm going to learn how to do, and in the process of getting to know each other, also get to know God. So, but because of that, we have to be wise. We have to be good managers of resources. So if you're interested in being a part of that, you can't show up unless you tell us you're showing up because we're contracting with this company to come in and do this for us, all right? So EncounterChurch.com forward slash follow. If you're interested in being part of that four-week journey, it kicks off June 1st, 7 p.m. here. There's no online version of it. It's just on-site. But I think it will be a great way to meet, connect with each other, and in the process, connect with our faith. So um, we're going to close up today with our team coming out to lead us um, and just reminding us of that bigger, greater picture that God is, is over us. He's bigger than our financial struggles. But how do you describe your money management? What three words? And whatever those three words are, pick one of the takeaways that we talked about this week and lean into it. Use this message as a, a, as a jumping off point to have a conversation with your spouse or with your kids about finances. And maybe for some of us, we just need to spend a little bit more thought about how we're spending our life because God is for us in our finances he desires freedom for us and he desires freedom to flow through us let's pray Jesus thank you thank you for your grace and your mercy I pray that you would give us wisdom discernment in this area of finances that you would help us to move towards freedom that you'd help us to act our wage that you would help us to intentionally choose the right pain of money management. God, that you would give us fresh vision for our finances in our lives. And thank you that you're a God who cares about our whole life. Not a transactional God who's only interested in us when we give you something. But that you're a God who gave something first for us to be transformed. And so may you meet us in the final minutes that we have together. May you, ins may you inspire and lead us, Holy Spirit, into new, fresh financial practices in our lives. And may the next two weeks change not just us, but the world through us. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Right. I invite you to stand as they close this out with a